0: Of course, if you've lived in this community for a number of years or just a number of days, you know that one time during the year, Catonsville becomes a stir of excitement. There is a sense of pride and excitement centered around the 4th of July. As the streets are lined with uh, chairs and folks have their flags in their yards and folks are really excited about the 4th of July, Not only here locally, but we know nationally every year during the 4th of July, there is a sense of renewed patriotism and spirit and fervor about us. A sense of patriotic pride to be Americans and we enjoy it and celebrate it. That sort of national fever that runs throughout us and ignites us. Not only does Americans face these things and experience these things, the nation of Israel did as well. There was one season in the nation of Israel that created the kind of fervor, the kind of excitement that you often experience yourself around the 4th of July. And that is the Passover season. During the Passover, Jews would become nationally excited. Uh, They would be reminded of God's work in their lives. This was, if you will, their Independence Day. The day in which God delivered them from slavery in Egypt and sent them through 40 years of wilderness wanderings to the promised land. It was a, the Passover was a season in which they would remind themselves and teach their children about how God was the great rescuer. The one who had stood up to the mighty, powerful Pharaoh through his servant Moses. And how their servant Moses had, had led them out through the Red Sea and into the wilderness where they would meet with God at Mount Sinai and, and see all of God's glory and wonder in the, in the cloud and the fire by night. They would see before their eyes that God was the provider and rescuer of the nation and that He would give them bread from, ha- from, from heaven, manna they called it. What is this? We, we're not sure, but, but it comes from God and, and God would give them water through a rock, and He would give them quail when they desired some meat to eat. They experienced what it meant to live and be a part. And every year, uh, these Israelites would get together during the Passover season and and celebrate. And It would renew not only a, a desire to return to the past and the glory of the Exodus, but it also looked forward to a time in which God would bring ultimate deliverance to the nation of Israel. An excitement centered around a, a king who would come and, and would deliver them from captivity. Well, this is the context of John chapter 6. We find ourselves at the Passover. The, city of, the cities of Jerusalem, the cities surrounding Jerusalem would have been abuzz with travelers coming in from all over the Roman world to worship God during the Passover season. Not only that, there would be a sense of excitement and fervor because of a king they desired to have and freedom from the, from the tyrannous rule of Rome. In the end, this season excited them to think about when God would rescue them again. With that context in our mind, I want to point out a number of things that will help us this morning as we think about John chapter 6. Now, of course... Jesus ended in John chapter 5, teaching us that he was the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And two clues for us this morning as we begin, just as a reminder of where we ended, is in John chapter 5, in verse 45. So if you have your Bibles open, just look there, as Jesus wraps up his conversations there, he says, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses. whom you have set your hope for if you have believed Moses you would have believed me for he wrote of me but if you do not believe his writings how will you believe my words see this is a textual clue to to help us understand John chapter 6 Moses and the Passover are a central understanding as a reminder Moses was the leader he was the one who led God's people out of slavery in Egypt he was the central figure of the nation of Israel. He was the one who wrote the first five books, the Torah, the law. They, he was the writings. He was the one that everyone grew up as a child learning about and knowing. And Jesus testifies here in John chapter six that someone greater than Moses has come. So I invite you to turn to John chapter six if you've not done so already. It's found on page 891 in the Pew Bibles We're going to consider this whole chapter. Of course, these are 71 verses. We will not cover every one of them this morning, though it would be wonderful to do that. Uh, We're going to look at this in a summary form. And to help us understand what's going to follow in Jesus' teachings, uh, we need to understand what Jesus did in in John chapter 6. So I'm going to begin reading in verse 1 to get an understanding of the context. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee which is the seed of Tiberius. A large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said to this to test him, for he knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with the fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that had been done, they said, This indeed is the prophet who was to come in the world, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Well, friends, as we understand these two miracles, first the miracle of Jesus turning these few loaves and few fish to feed a multitude, 5,000 plus men, women, and children. And Jesus walking on the water and miraculously moving that boat from one side of the sea to the other side. We understand what Jesus will mean when he teaches that he is the bread from heaven. To summarize John chapter 6, I've summarized it with this statement. Jesus is the bread of life who rescues God's people by his substitutionary death on the cross and gives them eternal life. The great themes we'll see in this particular chapter is that Jesus is the bread of life who rescues God's people. And more importantly, is how he will go about rescuing them. Jesus makes emphatically clear that he is the bread that has come from heaven. But he has not just come from heaven to heal sick people and feed people, but rather to give his life as a ransom for many, and thereby giving eternal life. Through his death on a cross, so this morning our hope is to understand who Jesus is. Who Jesus is. This is the, the point of John's gospel is to understand not only Jesus' identity, who he is, but also why he came, and to evoke a response from us. Remember, John told us that he is written to not only reveal truth about Jesus, but also to evoke a response. To that revelation. Anytime the Bible reveals truth. It demands a response. Either you believe it. Or you reject it. And we see similarly here in John chapter 6. A similar theme of those who believe. And those who reject. Well this morning we want to just sort of walk through this passage. In three points. First we want to see the evidence. That have been given in these two miracles. And what they mean. We want to understand what happened. What happened. Because Jesus will use them as a canvas to paint a picture of why he came later in the uh, the chapter. So if you look there at chapter 6 verses 1 through 21, really we see the evidence that Jesus has come to rescue God's people. Then secondly, we see in verses 22 through the end of verse 40 that Jesus reveals uh, really why he came and why the crowds were following him. So in other words, he, he is exposing uh, the, the heart of man, your heart this morning. And then finally, we see uh, the two hard sayings of Jesus in verse 41 through the end of the chapter. Jesus gives two hard sayings uh, that, that really confront at our desire to satisfy ourselves apart from Jesus and ultimately how one would respond. Well, let's walk quickly through these um, First, we see two evidences, two pieces of evidence that Jesus has come to rescue God's people. First, in the feeding of the 5,000, and second, in Jesus' miracle of walking on water. Of course, as you have your Bibles open and as you're thinking through that, I've already given you the sort of textual clues to give you an understanding of what this passage means. This passage doesn't mean that Jesus merely has some sort of power to make bread spread out, and that He came to feed people. Jesus Christ's ministry isn't about just meeting people's physical needs. As He will go on to teach in John chapter six, Jesus primarily came to meet people's physical, or spiritual, rather, spiritual needs. Jesus came to be the the bread that the soul needs, not the the bread that our stomach needs. Well, as we understand these these two miracles, we need to have some Old Testament concept uh, context to understand them. First, remember that when the nation of Israel left Egypt and were in the wilderness, there was there was a big problem. There was probably around one to two million Israelites as they leave the the nation of Israel, where are so many people going to get enough food to feed themselves they're nomads they're wandering around it's not like they can you know plant some corn and wait for it to grow and then harvest it i mean they're on the run they are running what what are they going to do they are going to starve to death and so god miraculously provides for them every day manna from heaven A little flaky stuff that they would then take and eat. You'll know, be reminded that God told them to go out every morning and collect eg- exactly what they needed for that day. They weren't to take more. If they, if they gathered more, that it would spoil. They had to get exactly what they needed. And then on the sixth day, they were to gather what they needed for the Sabbath day. That, in other words, they weren't to go out on the Sabbath day. The point of that. Old Testament picture is that God rescues and provides for his people and Jesus here by performing this miracle by turning just a few into many by feeding maybe probably 10 to 15,000 people on a hillside was to display that he was like and greater than Moses. You see, he was like Moses in that he provided food to God's people miraculously. But he was greater than Moses in that Moses had to call to God to get the bread where Jesus just made the bread himself. Jesus displays his miraculous power to feed God's people when they're hungry. He's using this as an illustration of what he's come to do spiritually Not physically. More than that, he is greater than Moses in that he is the fulfillment of what Moses prophesied. In Deuteronomy chapter 18 verse 15. Excuse me. In Deuteronomy chapter 18 verse 15. Moses prophesies. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your brothers, it is him you shall listen. I will raise him up like a prophet among you. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them as I command him. Thousands of years earlier, Moses promised that one day from among the nation of Israel would arise a prophet. Who would rescue God's people and bring them in to a new kingdom. Well, what do we see at the conclusion of this miracle there in John chapter 6? Look here in verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. In other words, John includes this as as a textual clue to how we are to interpret this passage in that Jesus is the long-awaited prophet who Moses foretold. He's the one who is going to rescue and deliver God's people from their captivity. Not their physical captivity, but their spiritual captivity, as Jesus will make clear later in the chapter. Well, as we think about what Jesus does in the feeding of the 5,000, how does the walking on water relate? Well, if you remember, when the nation of Israel was leaving Egypt, what did they encounter? but a water. They they were trapped. They thought they were going to die. And God parted the waters and they walked through to the other side of the sea on dry land. In the parting of the waters, we see that Jesus is the authoritative one who rules over God's creation. Just as Moses parted the waters on the sea, so Jesus here walks over the waters and delivers his people from one side of the sea To the other. Well, in the Old Testament, God was the only one who could rule over the seas. Even Moses had to use his staff in order to part the sea. It wasn't Moses himself that was doing these things, but God through him. But here we see Jesus himself being the one who rules over the seas. So, for example, in Psalm 107, a psalm that many believe was fulfilled in this very act by jesus listen to psalm 107 then they cried to the lord in their trouble and he delivered them from their distress he made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed then they were glad that the waters were quiet and he brought them to their desired haven jesus displayed that he was the one who ruled over creation not only in creating the bread and the fish and multiplying them, but in his power to walk on water. This is why the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus displayed power over the water because he could stand on it and not sink. Well, both of these are for us to be an example of the Lord's power. That he is the one who is to come and ultimately rescue God's people. This is the evidence that we are to believe and to be encouraged that Jesus here displays power and brings his people safely through. He is the one who has come from heaven. But before he can rescue them, before he can rescue us... He must first rescue us from our wrong ideas. One of the central themes of this chapter is wrong ideas about Jesus. In fact, over the next several chapters, uh, you'll see John dealing with confusion about Jesus. One of those confusions you'll see right here in verse 15. If you have your Bibles open, look again. Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself or again in verses 20 excuse me verses 22 through 24 notice how the crowd reacts on the next day the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples but that his disciples had gone away alone other boats from Tiberius came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given things So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boat and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. You see, there was a couple of things going on here in this particular scene that Jesus is going to confront in them. He's going to expose the real reason why they wanted to make him king and the real reason they wanted to follow him. See, really what was behind these people was a wrong understanding of the Messiah. This is why Jesus often did things in secrecy. Because people were so charged up with national pride in the midst of the Passover season and witnessing the fulfillment of the the Mosaic prophecy that that a prophet would come that they wanted a king who would deliver them from their worldly troubles. You see, what they wanted was a king who would get them out of Roman occupation. See, they wanted Rome out. They wanted these Roman soldiers out of their streets. They wanted to be their own nation under their own sovereign king. More than that, they wanted their stomachs filled. They wanted to live in a country where no one had to worry about food where no one had to worry about health care, where no one had to worry about having a job, that this great king and and these great resources would be provided to all people and everyone would be satisfied. What they desired was a, a sort of utopian society in which everyone was good. You see, Jesus didn't come to bring about such a society. Not yet, at least. Jesus didn't come to to throw down the Roman Empire and to usher in a new kingdom. But rather, Jesus came to die for the sins that these people had committed. What we see in this passage this morning in verses 22 through 40 is that Jesus reveals the real reason he came. He reveals how he will rescue God's people. It won't be through a big army coming and marching forward but it'll be through his own death on the cross. Well, if you look here at verses 22 through 40, again, we don't have time to look at each of these verses. i want to call your attention to the main theme. The main theme here is that Jesus will take the, the act of turning, uh, turning bread and multiplying it and apply it to himself. He will say that I am the bread of life, that whoever believes in me, he shall live. Now, Jesus is using a metaphor here. Jesus literally isn't bread that we go and eat, but rather that Jesus, by faith, he is the one who supplies our needs. Jesus begins here by exposing their motives. So if you look here at verse 25, they come to him and, and they want to talk to him. They, 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 they're like, Jesus, like, man, I, I love this bread you're giving. This is awesome. I don't have to work for it. You just keep giving it. You keep supplying my bread you keep filling my paycheck up that all is good. And Jesus responds by saying, truly, truly, verse 26, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, remember those signs that Jesus, the miracles that were supposed to point to 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 believing in him and believing who he was, but. But, but for them, they, they were just happy to eat the bread. They were just happy because their bellies were full. And so Jesus warns them in verse 27, Do not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of, God, the Son of Man will give to him, for on him God has set a seal. In other words, he says to them, Stop working for worldly things and start working for eternal things. This is a theme that we see over and over again in the New Testament. This, this aspect that, as Christians, we want to strive for eternal matters and not consume ourselves with worldly matters. Jesus here is, is encouraging them to put aside working for these sort of things that perish. Food, of course, perishes, right? You buy bread, it perishes if you don't eat it. Here we see in this passage, Jesus says, what really matters is for you to pursue eternal life in me. For which I provide. Well, he goes on in verses 30 through 34 to explain what he means that he is the bread from heaven. And he basically interprets exactly how we have been thinking about this that he is the fulfillment of that Old Testament picture in the giving of bread from heaven. That Jesus is the rescuer. He's the one. And so, for example, he says, Our father, or they question, our fathers ate the man in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus has there in verse 32 his sort of key statement: Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is Excuse me. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they respond by saying, give us this bread always. In other words, Jesus is saying that he, by believing in him, that you and I receive bread eternally. That you and I, are, our souls are satisfied. Now this implies a number of things, doesn't it? First, it implies that our souls are hungry. Friends, this is what sin often does. Sin seeks to satisfy that which only Jesus can. This is why you can never get enough of sin. This is why sin never satisfies. It's like bread, right? I'm sure maybe some of you ate this morning. And what will you do when you get home? Well, surely you will go home and eat. And then later in the evening, you will eat some more. And then in the morning, you will eat more. And then at lunch, you'll eat more. And then at dinner, you'll eat more. And this perpetually goes on. Why? Because food never satisfies. You don't just have one meal. No, you have multiple meals. And you've had multiple meals. And you will continue if you want to keep living, right? Jesus here is saying this spiritually, that he is that which the soul is satisfied in. Friend, this is a reminder that the sin that you love will never, ever satisfy your soul. Only God can satisfy. Jesus is the bread that satisfies you. Friend, flee that sin which you think will satisfy. It doesn't. It will not. It doesn't. You always have to get more and more. It's never enough. This is exactly what Jesus is seeking to expose here in this section and inviting them to believe on him. So so how does, does one consume this bread of life that Jesus provides? Well, he tells us here in verse 35. Look here. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. In other words, by faith in Jesus, by believing that Jesus is enough, by saying, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that I turn from being satisfied with sin to be satisfied with Jesus. By doing that, Jesus promises that you will never thirst again. Again, he's not speaking here of physical thirst or physical hunger, but spiritual hunger, spiritual thirst. Jesus satisfies but I say to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. All that the father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should not lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Jesus says, if you want your soul to be satisfied, look on me. If you want to stop this endless cycle of pursuing the things in this world, and the sin that will not satisfy, the greed that will not satisfy, the lust that will not satisfy, the Whatever that will not satisfy and you believe on me and trust in me, I promise you, he says, I will satisfy your soul for all of eternity. And I promise that one day I will come again and I will raise you up to eternal life. Now you see some promises here in this passage, don't you? You see that first promise here that all that the father gives to me comes to me. Well, this is the doctrine of election. This is clearly Jesus' teaching. He'll teach more of this in John chapter 10. But here we see a, a sort of a, a, an embryonic form of the doctrine of election. He says, all that the Father gives to me comes to me. Well, who, how do we know? How do we know? That, that's usually the question that follows. Well, how do we know who God's elect are? Well, he tells us, doesn't he? Whoever comes to me. How do we know God's elect? Because they come to Jesus. How do we know who they are? We don't. We only know them by their fruit. And that fruit is, there in verse 38, is that they, excuse me, verse 37, is that they come to Jesus. And Jesus promises that if you come to me, I will not cast you out. And some may worry this morning, well, maybe I'm not one of the elect. Maybe I'm not one of these that the Father has chosen. Jesus says that whosoever comes to me, I will not cast out. And so the invitation is come to Jesus. You see. You won't come to Jesus unless the Father draws you, he says. He'll say as much later in this chapter. That the Father works to bring Jesus's people to him. That this is a miraculous event. But Jesus here extends the invitation. I extend the invitation to you. And though we are staunch in our understanding of the the divine sovereignty of God and salvation. That those whom he has predestined to be saved will be saved. While we believe that, we give a universal call to come to Jesus. In the hope that all those who would hear that call would repent of their sins and trust in Jesus. You see, the doctrine of election doesn't undermine evangelism. It actually fuels evangelism. You see, the doctrine of election right here fuels that whoever comes, comes not by the will of man, but by the will of God. So the Spirit works in our soul and brings life where there is death. The point is is that Jesus has come to rescue, not by satisfying the desires of our, our souls and our wants in life and our desires to be the, the kind of king and the kind of Jesus we want, but rather to be the Jesus His father sent him to be to be the rescuer of our soul. Well finally, we want to conclude our time with, by looking at these two hard sayings of Jesus. Verse 41 and verse 52. Notice two questions for which two hard sayings will follow. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. So first hard saying that Jesus is from heaven. Second hard saying, verse 52 the Jews then disputed among them, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Second hard saying, Jesus says, eat my flesh. How do we understand these? Well, first, the first hard saying is that Jesus is from heaven. And the point that we see here in this first hard saying is similar to what we just considered. The supernatural origin of both Jesus and his disciples. Now I want you to see what I mean. First, we see the supernatural origin of Jesus, that Jesus has come from heaven. But we see secondly the supernatural origin of those who believe in Jesus. Look again there in verse 41, 42. They said, "Is this not Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I've come down from heaven?" In other words, like We know where you live. We we know your address. Uh, We've seen your mom. We've seen your dad. Uh, We're pretty sure you're not from heaven. Uh, You're from Nazareth. This is what they're confronting. Jesus answers them in verse 43. Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he is who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate man in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread... He will live forever, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus makes two points very clear. Number one, there at the end, of that chat, and the end of that paragraph, is that he is the one who knows the Father. Because he's seen the Father. Jesus has made clear throughout John's Gospel that no one has ever seen the Father. Not even Moses, remember, saw God. One great request that Moses had there on Mount Sinai was to see God. God said, no. You can see my backside, but you can't see my face. Because if you see my face, you'll die. Well, Jesus here makes a clear claim that he's greater than Moses because he's actually seen God the Father face to face. I've seen the Father because that's where I'm really from. Jesus here reveals his supernatural origin but not only his origin, notice also the origin of those who believe. See, he's prodding them and poking them and he's saying, look, you can't see the truth because you're not from the father either. Look what he says. Do not grumble among yourselves. In other words, don't worry. It's all good. No one. Verse 44 means no one. Just to be clear. In case you were confused. No one can come to me unless the father who sent him draws him friends no one goes comes to jesus on their own no one wakes up and says man i want to follow jesus today you see no example of that in the new testament nor does any scripture support such foolishness no one wants to follow jesus why Because of our sin nature, we want to follow ourselves. You see, the fundamental problem with humanity is the sin nature that has a desire to be king rather than allow God to be king. The fundamental issue with humanity is that we want to run our lives. This is what we see in the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3. That Adam and Eve said, no, God, we we understand you've got all these rules and we want you to do these things. But no, we think we know best. And brothers and sisters, prior to coming to know Jesus Christ, that is how you and I lived. Whether we were five or 50, we were in rebellion against God. And we wanted nothing to do with God. If, if we had to choose between God and ourselves, we would have chosen ourselves every day of the week. Sure, we might have occasionally said, well, I better clean myself up if this whole God thing is true. But generally, we still wanted to run our life. Well, we see this even in the way the crowds reacted to Jesus. See, they didn't want Jesus to be the Jesus he revealed himself to be. They wanted their own Jesus. A Jesus who would be their puppet. Who would free them from Roman captivity. Friend, how are you making Jesus your puppet? Jesus reveals here a very hard saying. It's a hard saying, friends. But it should encourage you this morning. It should encourage you this morning because Jesus promises... All those who come to me, I shall never cast out. I will not lose one. You remember when Jesus fed the multitude? At the end, he told them to gather up all the food that none may be lost. It's the exact same phrase that Jesus uses right here. That none may be lost. You see... Friend, if you've you've been drawn by the Father, in other words, you've received the new birth, and you've been regenerated, and you've believed upon Jesus, and you're now a new creation in Christ, you can never die. You have life forever. And the Spirit will get you home. Jesus promises that you will be raised again to new life. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe that he will raise you up on the last day? Friend, though our faith shall fail, he will hold me fast. Perhaps this morning you doubt or are discouraged or maybe struggling in your faith. Doubting what's next in life, he will hold you fast. He will get you through and he will raise you up on the last day. The second hard saying we see in this section is verses 52 through 59. Jesus concluded the previous paragraph by saying, you've got to eat my flesh. (laughs) And and these sort of dull, kind of closed-minded Jews were like, oh my gosh, he, he wants us to eat him? That's so creepy. They had, they had made a, a sort of mental leap from the metaphors that Jesus was using of bread, and I'm the bread of life, and I've come, just like I just fed the multitude, I've come to feed you spiritually, to literal, like, we have to eat Jesus. But that wasn't Jesus' point at all, is it? We see here his third truly statement in verse 53. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Was was Jesus saying that we need to become cannibals? Not at all. Jesus here is metaphorically speaking about our faith in him, about feasting on Jesus, about believing on Jesus. He says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The communion or the Lord's Supper or or any mystical activity happening here. Jesus is simply speaking here about believing upon Jesus. About faith in Jesus. About saying that you depend on Jesus. That, that your soul is satisfied in Jesus alone. He is saying here, he's scandalized by the cross. He's saying that this is how it's going to happen. I, my body is going to be broken My blood is going to be spilt. I'm going to die. Remember, it was the Passover. Something happened on the Passover. In order for God's people to be rescued from death, a lamb had to be slaughtered. And the blood had to be painted on the doorpost. And this was reenacted year after year after year as a reminder that God rescues his people through the death of another. And this theme is is woven throughout the Old Testament until it comes to the New. And we see Jesus saying, no longer will we sacrifice animals. Instead, I have come to sacrifice myself. You see, the the cross and the, the atonement of Christ on the cross is scandalous, and it always has been scandalous. To a modern mind, it is scandalous to think that God would satisfy his justice through the death of an innocent man. What justice is that? That an innocent person dies for the guilty? That's not justice. Some in the modern mind would say that it amounts to child abuse. That the father would slaughter his own son to satisfy his own insatiable desires. Jesus makes clear that he has come of his own volition to do his father's will. To satisfy his father's wrath through the death of himself. For the sins of all those who would turn and trust in him. Friends the cross will always be scandalous. And the question for us this morning is how we will respond. To these hard teachings Jesus was met by two responses. Verse 60 reveals to us. That when many of the disciples heard this they said. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who's those who would believe and those who would betray him. And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you that no one comes to me unless it is granted to him by the Father. You see, false disciples are are offended by Jesus' words. Are you offended by Jesus? False disciples fail to realize that Jesus' words are spirit-inspired. In other words, Paul will say it this way, that only by the Spirit can you confess Jesus as Lord. False disciples refuse to come to Jesus and believe in him. They might follow him. They might give some sort of assent to him. Yeah, I like Jesus. But they're not following Jesus. And finally, false disciples, as we see here, look at verse 66. Abandoned their pursuit of Jesus. After this many of his disciples turned back. And no longer walked with him. You know. Jesus said. Some of the hardest things. When the crowds were the largest. Jesus said some of the hardest things. When the crowds were the largest. Yeah, isn't that the opposite of our nature? We tend to say the easy things. When a lot of people are around. I'm sure many of you have been taken in with some of the, the debates going on in the midst of the political season. Candidates say what you want to hear. They don't say hard things to you. They would never say hard things to you. They, they want to say what you want to hear. That's not how Jesus was. Jesus, you can't come. You, you want to follow me? You can't follow me. Isn't that what he says? This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father. That's a hard saying, friend. That's a hard saying. John would say later in 1 John that they went out from us because they were not of us. If they were of us, they would have persevered with us. But you see, they went out because they never were. Friends, there are a lot of people in this world you're going to come across who claim the name of Jesus and are not true disciples of Jesus. You're going to come across a lot of people who say, Lord, Lord, who are going to wake up one day to a fiery hell. This morning, what you need to think about isn't about them, but about you. You need to think about, am I a true follower of Jesus? Do I, do I, am I really following Jesus? I've heard these things about Jesus, but, but am I really following this Jesus? The one revealed in John chapter 6. Well, well, we see here in verse 67 that true disciples choose to stay with Jesus. When everybody's leaving Jesus, they stay. But do you know how tempting it would have been? For Peter and James and John and the rest of the disciples to see the multitudes, thousands of people leave Jesus that day. Again and again to see people leaving, yet they choose to stay. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Friend, do you, do you want to go away as well? This world is, is not warming up to Jesus, all right? And just get you a little reality check. I know you got all your, your uh, <laughs> I know you, you got, you're betting on November, right? L- let me just clarify something. It don't matter what happens in November. It don't matter what's going to happen with Supreme Court justice. It don't ma- None of that matters. This world isn't growing warmer to Jesus. And it definitely is not warming up to us as Christians. So do you want to still follow him? You know, Jesus said to his disciples later, if you want to follow me, you have to take up your cross, an instrument of death, and follow me. And I'm not going to rosy pastures. I'm going to a cross to die myself. To choose to stay with Jesus is a death sentence. Secondly, we see that true disciples are those who are attracted by Jesus's words not repelled by them look there at verse 68 peter said to him lord where are we going to go you have the words of eternal life we have believed and come to know that you are the holy one of god friend are you attracted by Jesus' words do you hunger to hear from jesus and his Word? one of the truest tests of a disciple of Jesus is the insatiable desire to know Jesus in his word. I don't know of a Christian that doesn't love the scriptures. Show me a person who doesn't love the scriptures and I'll show you a person is not a follower of Jesus. Thirdly, we see here a true follower of Jesus recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah and they believe in him. Peter Peter says, we confess that you are the Holy One of God. You are the Messiah. Friend, you cannot be a Christian and not believe that Jesus is the Christ The Savior of the world. You just can't. There's no category. Jesus isn't just merely a prophet, a wise teacher, someone who's helping you get through the day. He is the Holy One of God. The one that we heard Sean read about that was there before the throne with the myriads of myriads, the thousands of thousands, ten thousands times ten thousands, worshiped by. And fourthly, we see here, finally, that true disciples of Jesus Realize the ever-present danger of betraying Jesus. Look here at verse seventy and how it ends. Jesus answered him, "Did I not choose you, choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil?" He spoke of Judas the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Understanding Simon or Judas rather, Simon Iscariot. To understand the danger of betraying Jesus. It's an ever-present danger in our lives. A temptation to betray Jesus. We may do it subtly. When we're confronted with maybe moral teachings or moral ideas in our culture. That everyone else accepts. Yet we know the Bible teaches contrary to it may be easy to deny Jesus when the crowds are leaving. It might be tempting to deny Jesus when we do recognize and see that this world isn't coming to Jesus. But is hell bent on destroying the kingdom of Jesus? Friends, this is a true disciple, one who's humble. You heard it when you read Psalm 25 that those who are true Followers of God are those who are humble. Who fight against the temptation to pride. And are continually trusting in the finished work of Christ. Friend, Jesus is the bread of life who rescues. And he will rescue you today if you will only turn from your sin and trust in him. We have witnessed it through the miracles of the feeding of the 5,000 and the parting of the waters. Jesus has come To die the death you and I deserve. And to usher us to eternal life. By doing the work of the Father. By believing in the Son for eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we do pray this morning that we would know Christ better. That we would be true disciples. That we would follow Jesus to our own death. That we would feast upon the words of Christ. That we would confess with Peter that, that Christ is the one who, who is the Holy One. He is the words of eternal life. There's, there's, there's no one else. Father, I pray for the non-believer and, un- and believer alike that we would find satisfaction in Jesus today. For your glory and our eternal good in Christ's name. Amen.